Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Gareth Brady. He's an usher assistant professor uh, in clinical medicine at Trinity College, Dublin. A beautiful place. I've I walked the grounds in Trinity College once before, and it's uh, really nice. So um, Today, we're going to talk about, uh, he's going to answer some of the questions for the virus book that I'm working on. But uh, his current work is a translational information research group, TURG. Um, they're investigating how viruses target and inhibit common pathways that drive inflammation in human cells. And then uh, they use the knowledge to develop novel strategies to you know, therapeutically inhibit these pathways. So that's like a real basic overview. But uh, welcome, Gareth. How are you doing? Good. Thank you very much for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, in, in a better way. Tell me about your, your research and in, uh, in your words. It'll come out better and uh, you know, what's it about? Sure. Um, so, so my interest is, is in studying viruses that uh, are very efficiently able to target um, innate immunity. And uh, so all viruses develop some skills in doing this, uh, but some are better than others. And so um, I did my PhD on, on vaccinia virus, which is a, a pox virus, or was rather was the vaccine strain used to eradicate variola, the cause of invasion of smallpox. But uh, during my PhD, it became quite clear that, you know, it, was a, it wasn't a great virus study to try and find out how to turn off human pathways because manifestly this virus doesn't do it because that's why it works uh, such a good vaccine strain because it drives the immune system nuts. Um, but there is one virus that's specifically adapted to human um, infection. Um, it's the only virus we know of um, that does this, and it's, it's called Mustmetagiosum virus. And it only infects humans, and it's way out on its own in the family tree of pox viruses. And it's completely different from vaccinia virus, and very, very understudied um, uh, before I started working on it. Because, of course, um, the, the most interesting thing about it is it doesn't cause disease. And that, you know, on the one hand, makes it a very, very interesting thing to study because if it doesn't cause disease, then that clearly indicates that it's very good at getting around the immune system because most virus disease is caused by the reaction against the virus by the immune system rather than what the virus is actually doing itself. But that, unfortunately, also makes it kind of a funding liability because, you know, we go to a funding body and say, um, hi, can you give me some money to work on a virus that doesn't cause disease? It's, uh, it's obviously not going to be a, a very saleable thing. But uh, so my approach really is to try and understand how it goes about evading the immune system and switching off the pathways that, that we use to detect virus and respond to them. And perhaps, you know, reveal new things about the pathways we didn't know before, because the viruses are evolving things that target specifically the rate limiting steps of these pathways. So, so they're almost acting like a, a sort of an investigative uh, probing on the pathways to try and figure out the best pits to inhibit. So if your objective really is to try and find novel ways of switching off pro-inflammatory pathways, then no better way to go about it than studying a virus that's evolved to specifically target the best bits. Oh, wow. So that, that would be in a nutshell, really, is what, what the, the project is on. Well, quick question here of the pathways that viruses are known to uh, inhibit yep. at just the right point. How many steps are in some of these pathways? How complicated are they? Well, a lot of this has really only emerged in the last 10 to 20 years. I mean, for most of the history of immun immunology, really, you know, of, we've known quite a lot about adaptive immunity because there's two parts to immunity. There's innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. And the adaptive immune system, I'll start with first, of course, that's all the downstream stuff. That's the T and B cells. You know, the B cells produce antibodies that specifically target uh, uh, peptides in the virus. So that's, that's if you get a new virus infecting, it has lots of proteins and those proteins are made up of peptides and, and, uh, and epitopes. And so you develop antibodies against specific peptides in those proteins. And then you've got T cells that do the same thing, but their job really is to target virally infected cells and kill them. So we've known about that for a very long time, at least about 60 years or possibly even more. Uh, but wasn't, what wasn't known is exactly what kind of triggers it. So, so you, for example, if you took a dish full of cells and you infected it with virus, for a long time, they knew that a lot of nothing happened for several hours. And suddenly the cells start pumping out very specific soluble factors um, that are tailored for whatever the pathogen is. So in the case of viruses, 
the cells start, cells start producing lots of what are called interferons and also pro-inflammatory cytokines. And the interferon job is to basically um, uh, percolate out from that initially infected cell and stimulate all their surrounding cells to turn on about 500 genes. And those 500 genes make those cells not permissive for incoming virus. When the virus then leaves the initial cell and tries to infect those surrounding cells. And then this, the pro-inflammatory cytokines drive inflammation. And the job of inflammation really is to swell up the area and, and, and trigger to the adaptive cells to come in and start responding so that you can generate that very potent adaptive response that's needed to get rid of the virus completely. So um, what was discovered in the late 80s and sort of early 90s were there was these specific sensors that were able to, 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 to sense invariable features of all these pathogens. So the first one that was discovered was um, by a chap called Bruce Beutler and uh, another uh, guy called Jules Hoffman. And what they discovered was that uh, there was a receptor called toll-like receptor 4. And this was able to detect uh, lipopolysaccharide, which is a feature of gram-negative bacteria. Um, and that effectively is what mostly drives septic shock. And septic shock is one of the biggest killers in the world, you know. So what it does is it binds, LPS binds to TLR4 and that drives gene expression leading to the production of these pro-inflammatory cytokines and so much of them that it drives what's called systemic inflammation and you get a very high fever and, and all kinds of sort of system-wide effects and then you effectively die as a result. So it's a very, very potent way of, of, uh, of driving uh, sepsis. Now, that was the first one that was discovered, and it won the Nobel Prize in, in 2011 for that discovery, because subsequent to that, they started to go looking for other kinds of sensors um, that were able to detect, for example, viruses. And so for the last 20 years and 30 years... One, one uh, clarifying question there. So can you break down the steps in that mechanism a little bit more? Um, yeah. So it's causing the cell, an infected cell, to express certain, what, antigens on its cell surface that then triggers... Uh, a strong immune response, or am I missing it? How, how does it work specifically? So, so what happens is, so, so they discovered a whole lot of, of, of sensors for viruses inside cells. And what these sensors are detecting are the things that virus can't get away from producing. So viruses can mutate everything, basically, and change all their proteins. But the one thing they can't get away from having to have is nucleic acids to encode these proteins, you know. So we've evolved these sensors for viral nucleic acids. And what they do is, when they bind to these viral nucleic acids, they trigger what's called a signal transduction pathway. And that feeds a signal downstream to what are called transcription factors. And then they jump into the nucleus and binds to loads of genes and switch them on. And the most important genes in that process are these soluble factors I, I talked about, like interferons and pro-inflammatory cytokines. And both of those, and all of those soluble factors essentially are bringing about all of the effects necessary to trigger the second part of the immune system, which is the, the adaptive immune response. So what viruses are doing effectively is they're targeting those early steps. So they're stopping the sensors working. They're, they're targeting the signals from instruction pathways. They're stopping the transcription factors getting activated. And if they can do that successfully, then they're effectively flying under the radar of the immune system because we've got to nip it in the bud at that stage before it gets further on to triggering this adaptive response. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I guess so my answer is uh, they're able to very specifically surgically interfere in unbelievably complex pathways is that one way to put it yeah i mean surgical is exactly uh, the right word i mean it really is surgical and, and one of the reasons why it ends up being surgical is because uh, particularly pox viruses is what they're doing is they're actually stealing uh, genes from the body they're seeing fragments of genes from the body and they're using they're expressing sort of uh, partial versions of the intracellular proteins and they're using these almost like decoys so for example if you can imagine there's, there's a protein in one of these signal transduction pathways that transmits a signal well if the virus steals part of the gene for that protein it then expresses it and then that uh, fragment of it is able to decoy the interaction between proteins in that pathway and completely stop it transmitting the signal downstream so they're doing this all the time they're picking up uh, gene sequences they're trying them out they're get rid what, get, getting rid of the, what doesn't work. They're taking up new things. And you can imagine over you know, thousands or millions of years of doing this, they get extremely surgical about, about specifically targeting the best bits. They don't bother targeting anything that, that's not effective or efficient. They're only going after the most important bits. And that, that has been, we've shown that time and time again, that you know, it's, it's almost predictable in a sense what bits of the pathway they're going to target. Because you can see upstream, there's no point in targeting uh, multiple pathways that are all ending up uh, activating a common core pathway part downstream, if you know what I mean. So they'll just go after the bit that's common to all the upstream bits. So it's it's quite surgical. I mean, it's a very good way of putting it. So um, this was one of the questions I had. Um, 
if you consider um, a, a pathway and all the, the elements of it and all the steps in it as an information space, and viruses are, are essentially exploring that information space and figuring out targets and then, you know, interfering, in a, you know, like I put it, a very surgical way. <clears throat> Do you think that viruses could be harnessed like, like biological supercomputers or like biological AI to um, explore other information spaces? For instance, um, you know, if, uh, if a given virus fuses to and enters a cell, um, could you somehow create an experiment where uh, viruses by, by, by changing the, uh, you know, the, let's say the receptors on the cell surface, et cetera, they'd, they'd be forced to explore that information space and, and figure out novel ways to, to enter the cell that we couldn't, we couldn't do without tons of grunt work. You think they could be used in that way? Well, well and that, that's precisely how we use them in a sense, because uh, we're using them as, as a sort of microcosms of evolution in a sense, you know. So if um, you uh, allow a virus, particularly an RNA virus actually is a better example, because RNA viruses evolve uh, very rapidly because their, their genomes don't copy as, with, with the same fidelity as, as DNA viruses like pox viruses do. So they evolve tremendously fast, you know. So in a sense, um, the end product of, um, of the evolution of a virus in t inside a particular host is like that experiment running, you know? So, so again, taking the example of molluscal contagiosum, when you observe the lesions on the skin that it, that it forms, I mean, these lesions are completely chock full of virus. I mean, they're loaded full of virus and it can last for years. And it's very, very unusual because uh, most viruses that last for years go into some sort of latency or dormancy. They hide from the immune system by switching off gene expression or, 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 or deposit themselves in our, in our genomes and just hide. But molluscum just stays there for often years. I mean, it can last up to four years in some cases, and it's always producing all of its proteins and it's always uh, uh, present. And yet the lesions are never inflamed. They, 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 they largely persist as if the, the immune system doesn't even know it's there. So in a sense, when you look at that system and you say, well, that's impossible because we know that the skin particularly is the vanguard of the immune system. I mean, the, the, the keratinocytes in the skin express all of the sensors I was talking about. They, some cells express some of the sensors, other cells express other of the sensors. The skin we now know expresses all of them. So it's absolutely primed to sense any viruses coming in, particularly molluscum. So in a way, you're looking at it from, from uh, the end point and saying, look, it's very good at switching off these pathways. We just need to figure out how it's doing it. And if we figure out how it's doing it, then we know exactly what bits to go after in these pathways for switching off human inflammation, for example. And inflammation underlies all human disease, arguably, either directly or indirectly. So, Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, so um, do you think that, uh, that viruses beneficially contribute to an organism's immunity and immune system or is it's only they're just evading it and messing with it and regulating it for nefarious purposes or do you think there's ever a beneficial uh, component of it where the virus actually helps the organism's immune system um the answer is yes but uh, indirectly and so the, the, the process is really actually like a cold war and an arms race you know, the complexity of all these systems in, in human cells, for example, you know, it's evolved to be complex because viruses have become better and better at evading these pathways. So if you can imagine, you know, if you look in Drosophila, for example, Drosophila has a very reduced, Drosophila is a fruit fly, by the way, so it's a very amenable system for genetic study. So if you look in Drosophila, it's got a very, very reduced set of, of these sensors and these systems. But if you look at a much more complex organism like humans, it's a massively expanded set of pathways and sensors. And I believe that the reason for that is because the viruses that infect us have been targeting these pathways for so long that it's forced humans to evolve multiple sensors to try and detect them so that they can't easily evade. And in the same, at the same time, these viruses are evolving more and more inhibitors to target these pathways. So as the virus is better at gets better at avoiding the pathways, uh, vertebrates like humans have to develop new, newer and newer ways of stopping it from slipping under the radar by having, you know, like a burglar breaking into a, you know, or a, jet, or a diamond thief breaking into, into, into a museum or something, you know, and it's got all these tripwires all over the place. If it, if it gets good at, at avoiding certain tripwires, you've got to design more nefarious ways of stopping, of triggering 
in entering in just try and steal the diamond, if, if you can use that example. And so uh, in a sense, the virus is driving our evolution to get better and better at sensing pathogens. And some of these sensing pathways also have fringe benefits of also detecting uh, bacteria and also detecting cell damage. And one really good example of this has only come about in the last couple of years is there was a protein called Seagas discovered in 2016 by a guy called James Chen. And Seagas detects DNA but it doesn't specifically detect viral DNA, but it's almost certainly evolved to detect DNA viruses. Um, and we can see that with knockout experiments in mice, that they, they very, very much have a problem detecting DNA virus specifically when you infect them. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Now, uh, because Seagas evolved to detect DNA in a non-specific way, in a sense, they're just looking for decompartmentalized DNA. So what's decompartmentalized DNA? Well, most DNA is in the nucleus. Uh, well, all of our DNA is in the nucleus, and some of it's in mitochondria, but none of it's in the cytoplasm. So we've evolved the system to say, well, any DNA in a cytoplasm has got to be a virus. And so we've evolved this system to detect DNA. Now, as it happens, there's also bacteria that can infect cells like tuberculosis is a good example. And when that gets inside, Seagas is able to detect that. Uh, and furthermore, when you damage a cell and the, nu the nucleus gets damaged and, and DNA leaches out, it also triggers that process and also accelerates the process of wound healing. And that's a very, very important job that Seagas does. So the virus has actually sort of benefited us by forcing us to der derive these new systems for detecting not only their presence, but also the presence of lots of other things. So it's massively speeding up evolution in that, in that respect, by forcing us to adapt constantly to the outside uh, infectious environment. Yeah, I know in bacteria, um, the phages will, you know, will, well, the bacteria will take different elements of the phage DNA and, uh, or the phage sure, genetic yeah. material and incorporate it. I've even heard of um, bacteria, you know, uh, being able to express spike proteins like some viruses have and mm -hmm. use it to puncture other bacteria. So um, it, it seems like viruses are tools viruses use cells as tools cells use viruses as tools oh, what, what do you think governs uh, who uses who um it, it's very i just think it's very much a, a battle between both you know i mean it, it's a battle uh, to survive you know and, and the fastest evolving genes in in in, 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 in human genetics and, and indeed i guess all animal genetics are innate immune genes and, and that's primarily the reason and you, you can really see it happening, you know, in cert when certain populations are, are slightly more resistant to an infection because they've got, a, they've got an abrupt mutation that gives them a preferential survival advantage over another population. And that's an example of that sort of evolution happening in human populations. And there's been a couple of examples of that over the years where that's happening. So, and that doesn't really happen with anything else but innate immune genes where you can see those kinds of changes happening in human populations in real time almost. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, uh, one of my earliest questions is, you know, are viruses alive? Why and why not? What's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, a sort of a classic um, day one virology lecture question. You know, that's, that's uh, I, I, mean, I, I give a lot of virology lectures myself and sort of, you know, you kind of end up asking that question, you know, to, to, to get the, 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 the noggin jogging, you know, for students to think about it a bit. But I've always sort of internally thought it was a sort of a pointless argument. It's almost like asking the question about is Pluto a planet, you know? I mean, it kind of comes down to the question of what you define life as. You know, both the alive and non-alive answers are sort of correct in a way, uh, depending on how you define life. I mean, they are alive in the sense of the replicators. And in some cases, like pox viruses, um, they're, they're more alive than others because pox viruses actually look like sort of reduced cells. And it's very, very likely that pox viruses were originally single-celled organisms that uh, uh, found it beneficial to get inside cells and eventually started to lose all the genes that allowed them to live independently. And that's, there's a benefit to doing that because if you can strip away all the genes you don't need and just use whatever the cell has, then the time to replicate your genome is faster. So you, you can produce more virus quicker. And then the more virus you can produce, the more infectious you are. And that, that's an obvious benefit and obvious selection to do something like that. And there's very good evidence for this because um, the polymerases, like the DNA polymerase and the RNA polymerases, which facilitate replication of the genome and transcription of its genes respectively, look far more like archaea versions of those polymerases than they do like the host polymerases. So there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that they were originally single-celled organisms that basically just became dependent on the cell. And another good example of this, of course, is mitochondria. You know, mitochondria are in every single cell in the body, and we are absolutely dependent on them to make energy. Now, mitochondria 
there's a very strong theory about mitochondria and also chloroplasts, by the way, the things inside plant cells that, that uh, facilitate photosynthesis. Uh, both of them have their own genomes and they're circular genomes. And they look quite like bacterial genomes. Um, and so it's called endosymbiosis. And the idea is that at some point, you know, probably billions of years ago, these single-celled organisms got inside ancestral versions of our cells. And they, they provided an advantage to the cell because they were able to generate energy. And so the cell just said, okay, why don't you stay here? And then they got rid of all the genes they didn't need. And then they became resident within human cells and of course plant cells respectively in the case of chloroplasts. And so that sort of you know, niche, you know, it's, it's like all, all life in a sense because you know, all life sort of falls into niches uh, of opportunity. And, and in that sense, it comes back to the question of well, what is life? Well, I think all of these things are arguably life because they can replicate. I mean, that, that would be the primary definition. Of course, they can't live independently, but uh, certainly, I mean, if you take, for example, colonies, like if you look at lichen, which is a cyanobacteria, um, living within a, um, a, a cluster of, of different uh, fungi. So it's a colony of different organisms. One can photosynthesize, the other can degrade, can saprophytically degrade material and provide energy from that. And they're inseparable. I mean, they can't live apart. They're kind of colonies that, that are mutually require each other, sort of a marriage of all these creatures to perform uh, that one sort of living function of everything. So as a broader question of, of what is life, all of these things fall into well, what is dependent, independent? I mean, nothing is really independent from its environment and, and, or independent from some other creature. Um, the, the reason why I think this is actually a very important question is that if people say, oh, viruses are not alive, then it closes your mind off, in my opinion, to many things that they could do and why they do it. And if you instead force yourself to say, well, if they are alive, then what? You know, if you look at a given question, and you look at it deliberately from both perspectives, I think you'll get very different answers. So that's why I think yeah. the question is like, actually really important, you know, like, 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 here we go, I'm going to ask you some more and, and think about it from both angles. So, you know, why are some viruses, uh, you know, able to be latent in a host for years or even its lifetime, but, you know, when the host experiences stress or a problem, now they turn lytic and they, you know, they're like rats leaving the ship and they, yes. you know, they, they, what, why does that happen? And, and how is that decision made? You know, how can, wh why are some viruses just, you know, pathogenic and lytic and they just come in and, you know, kill cells and other ones are not? And, you know, how can some endogenize? Why, how could you make that choice to endogenize into a host? How could you, you know, what, again, what, so that's my first question is why do you think that uh, there's this difference in behavior? Um, well, the, the difference in behavior is not uh, so much intentional in the virus. I mean, that, that's quite clear from, from a number of viruses. I mean, I spent a good six years working on, on a very interesting, uh, another DNA virus called Epstein-Barr virus, and that's got a lytic and, and latent stage. You know, you, what was originally sort of described, you know, the, the, these two cycles as, as lytic and lysogenic, but that more applies to bacteriophage. But it's lytic, it's lytic and latent in, in mammalian viruses. And Epstein-Barr virus, when it enters first, so it first infects through the, the uh, the, the mucosal epithelium and it affects those cells rather sort of poorly or weakly and then it gets inside the body and starts looking for b cells because that's a target cell and when it gets inside the b cells it drives a, a massive proliferation in the b cells so it has loads of different molecules that mimic all of the different signals a b cell needs to become activated and in the process of doing this it's also going through lytic replication and lytic replication by the way doesn't always lyse the cell um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a large part of it is because the virus is going through entry uh, replication, generating uh, virus factories and producing new virus, which can leave the cell through a very specialized means that doesn't actually lyse the cell. I mean, cells often do eventually lyse because of what the virus is doing to the cell, um, but that's slightly downstream. Now, what, the, what happens is, is that you're generating an immune response against this virus. And so as you do so, the antibodies are being generated against those lytic genes, of the, the lytic proteins that the virus are produ is producing. And so it puts the virus under pressure to switch those genes off and turn on all of the latent genes because it's got a whole separate set of latent genes. And what the latent genes are doing are, are gradually shutting down the, vir the virus so that it becomes undetectable from the immune system. And so eventually what happens is, is that it, it's only expressing one or two genes. And those two, ge those two genes produce proteins that just maintain the nucleus or maintain the genome of the virus inside the nucleus of the B cells. And 90% of the population have EBV genomes inside their B cells floating around the body for life. And it stays there for life. 
occasionally reactivates, but you generate the same immune response against those lytic genes, and that switches it back to that latent cycle. So it's not a process really of the virus choosing to go lytic or latent. It's actually responding to the pressure of the immune system reacting against the lytic genes, which are, are more immunogenic than the latent genes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> when, uh, when a virus infects, uh, there seems to be a latency period, you know, sometimes <laughs> hours, days, weeks, months, you know. Yep. Um, why is that? Is, do you think it's just exponential growth of the virus and quote-unquote enough cells have to be infected or are there other mechanisms at play? You know, maybe quorum sensing uh, amongst the virus, you know, once they're inside infected cells. So, you know, are there enough of us? Okay, go. Um, unfortunately, they're, they're far too selfish for that. I mean, they operate really as independent entities. There's not a lot of crosstalk between viruses, uh, you know, not, no obvious crosstalk between them in, in a way that would benefit any others. I mean, they're operating, again, quite selfishly. But um, there's two different signs to that question. The first is, if, if what you mean is, when do you first start seeing pathogenicity from the virus? Well, the first part of it is, is how quickly the virus can generate enough of a viral load to drive the immune system to manifest the pathology. Um, and so some viruses, like RNA viruses, uh, 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 divide very quickly. Uh, but they do it very efficiently in a sense that they're not suppressing the immune system. So the innate immune system is trying to limit it. Um, and the adaptive response is killing off cells that have virus. However, if they can generate enough of a critical mass of genomes, uh, that generates a very potent uh, innate response, then you start getting things like fever, because fever is driven by a cytokine called uh, interleukin-1-beta. And you need quite a lot of that in the serum to, to generate a, a fever response, because it actually hits the, the, the hypothalamus. And that generates a signal to the liver to start, that tells it to start metabolizing more sugar. And that's what generates the heat that causes fever. So um, part of the, of the issue is, is how quickly can the virus generate a critical mass of genomes, uh, of, of virions and genomes in order to do this? And the second part of the question is, is, is how does the cell respond to the virus? Uh, and how does it, uh, uh, the, the strength of the response from this innate immune response that generates uh, the cytokines that again, make you feel bad and give you a fever and, and in some cases ultimately kill you. Now, like I said before about viruses that are very well adapted to the host, they get very good at switching off those innate responses. So that even as they're growing and generating a crit critical mass of virus, um, that innate system isn't efficiently triggering the innate, the, the, the innate response such that a trigger is a strong adaptive response to clear it. So it's an interesting interplay between what the virus is doing and how the host is responding to it. And that determines uh, uh, how long it takes before a, a virus present, presents. For example, with SARS-CoV-2, the current uh, cause of, of course, COVID-19, and that can take, you know, from anything from two days to 10 days. And that's probably a very complex dynamic of what that virus is doing inside the host before it generates enough virus to drive an immune response. And what's ultimately killing people, by the way, is the virus seems quite good at switching off the interferon response so that you generate a lot of virus very, very uh, quickly within cells. But when cells come in and, and, and suddenly find all of this material, when they're able to get past that blockade, then they find so much material that it drives a really strong inflammatory response that causes the lung tissue to swell up uh, to the extent, it's called uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. It's exactly the same as what happens, by the way, in pandemic influenza. Um, and that abrupt uh, encounter of all of this virus material drives a really strong inflammatory response. So it's all these dynamics between what the virus is doing and what the host is doing would be the answer to the question that would determine when you start seeing pathology. And, and that's what's called the incubation period, obviously, is the incubation mm, period is, right. is not virus-centered, it's more host-centered. It's an observation of what's happening to the host rather than the virus. Well, along those lines, if there's a virus that makes someone, like, deathly ill, and I get it from them, versus of the same virus, but, you know, the other person, like, barely feels anything, and I get it from them, do you think I'll, I'll you know, my symptoms and, you know, I know I'm unique and everything's different about me and all that, my genetics, epigenetics, et cetera, my immune status, but do you think there's going to be a correlation? If I get virus from a really sick person, will I be very sick, or is there no correlation? Sick or not sick, it's no, no difference. Uh, there's a very strong correlation, actually, and the correlation is between virus load and exposure. So it was observed very early on um, in the, the COVID-19 situation that uh, medical staff in particular were getting very, very serious infections. And, and it was pinned down, and, and I mean, it seems there's reasonably good evidence now to show that uh, the, the amount of virus and what's called the virus load 
that you're exposed to um, at the beginning that you know you're effectively inoculated with all this virus at once determines uh, how quickly uh, and, and how grave uh, the disease eventually becomes. And of course, it makes sense because you've got lots of virus infecting at the same time. It reaches that critical mass faster so that you get a much more dramatic response. Um, now, that being said, the, the shedding period uh, during an infection differs between viruses. And so with, with SARS-CoV-2, um, people can be tremendously uh, uh, contagious at a very early stage before you even get, get a spike in fever, you know, and it, it, that's one of the reasons why, I mean, there's a couple of reasons why this virus is so contagious, but I, I, would, I would argue that that's probably one of the most important uh, reasons why, because it, it's dramatically contagious before a person is actually bed bound and sick, for example, you know. Well, you know, okay, so viral load is a factor that's correlated with probably how sick someone is, okay. Um, what, what other factors do you think are important in that interaction? You know, what about my genetic makeup? What about my immune oh, history? Sure. Yeah. What about my epigenetic marks, uh, you know, yeah. et cetera? Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, 80% of people that, that come across this virus in particular, and I, I'm sure it's the same for a lot of, a lot of uh, particularly respiratory viruses, uh, about 80% of people have no symptoms at all, or, or at least very mild symptoms. They don't require hospitalization, but for about 20% of people, they end up in hospital and about 3% of those die. And that's a dynamic. Now, uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is it, a huge proponent of it is, of course, immunity uh, of the individual at the time. And there's no doubt about that because of the age uh, discrepancy in, in, in the response to this virus. You know, I mean, there's no doubt about it that with every decade after 40, the chance of, of being hospitalized increases and the chance of dying increases, quite frankly. Um, and that's because, probably because the immune system begins to knacker out as you get older, like everything else does, you know. I mean, but that's the case for this virus. And if you take the, the 20 or sort of 1918 Spanish flu, that killed mostly younger people. So it's not a it's a very virus specific phenomenon who would affect who it affects the most and who it doesn't affect at all, you know. Um, but. The problem is, you know, all of the data from, from, from a lot of these outbreaks is coming from people who get sick. We don't have data on the people who don't get sick because they're not, they don't become part of the data, you know. And in the current situation, what you really need to do is we need to go out and start testing everybody for antibodies. And that's one of the things I'm doing, my lab is doing at the moment now. We're developing seroassays for SARS-CoV-2 to try and do population screens because that's the only way you'll know what the proportion of people who've been exposed haven't really gotten sick at all and then have recovered and have antibodies compared to the people that present become part of the statistics and then you get a proper statistic on what that the infectivity is so going back to your question about what's the probability if i get exposed to if my person is really sick will i get sick myself well we won't really know that until you have all the data of the of all of the population both the asymptomatic people and the symptomatic and of course mortally ill people mm, okay um if uh you know, virions are supposed to be essentially immobile. They're floating along. And, you know, if, if I know there's a lot of viruses in the world. There's like 10 to the 31, supposedly. And, mm -hmm. you know, over all time, I don't know how many infections have happened. I'll just, a huge number, I don't know, 10 to the 20, let's say. If, if viruses are so small, you know, let's say 50 to 100 nanometers on average, and their hosts can be microns to meters, mm -hmm. how do they find their targets? How do they find the receptor on the cell? That's, you know, I don't know, 10 nanometers in size in this yeah. vast expanse of, uh, you know, of potential hosts. How do they do it so many times so reliably without any signaling or, you know, guidance? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the answer to that question is, is it doesn't really take into account how fast things move, microscopic how fast things, uh, microscopic things move in fluid. I mean, they move dramatically fast. Now, it's driven by tropism for the entry receptor. So if you imagine, for example, HIV uh, getting into the bloodstream through fragile or fragile tissue or broken skin, the genitals, for example. Now, it has to go quite a distance before it comes across a CD4 and CD, CD4 positive or CCR5 uh, positive cell because it's looking for both those receptors, right? And, and they just both happen to be expressed on, 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 uh, on CD4 positive T cells. Now, um, they are rolling around all that they're floating around this, this fluid all the time at a very, very fast speed, but so are these T and so are these T cells. And so what's happening is, is when they come into proximity, the interaction between the, uh, the virus receptor and the CD4 and CCR5 molecules is electrostatic. So it's acting like a magnet. So as soon as it comes into a reasonable proximity, it's going to, you know, so, so electrostatic interactions, it's more physics really, but they uh, decrease with the square of the distance between the two things interacting. However, 
there's still a, a, a kind of a magnet-like attraction between those two things because they, they kind of want to find each other from a molecular point of view. So it doesn't take too much time of rapidly moving around in fluid. Um, you know, for example, in the bloodstream, I mean, the, the virus is going to be moving around throughout the whole body. It's being pumped by the heart. The blood's going around and percolating through the tissue. It's not going to be too long before that finds those cells. And once it does, then it starts to replicate and produce you know, 10 to the 6 version of the virus per, per 50 cells, whatever. And when it does that, you've just got a huge viral load that then doesn't have any trouble finding any of these cells. Um, but obviously, I, I absolutely appreciate what you're saying. The, the, there, is a, there is a lag period between entry and finding the target cell, but it's, it's not really as long as you think because of the nature of how fast microscopic things move in fluid. Okay. I mean, it's not the virus itself moving, by the way, of course, it's in fluid motions pushing things around. Um, and you can even really see this under a microscope. The smaller things are, the faster they move, like on a film on a microscope, or on, you know, on a microscope slide. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not motility per se, but it's fluid motions. Mm, okay, gotcha. Um, you know, when someone's infected with a virus, uh, I, I would guess they're not just infected with one specific genetic sequence. You know, the virus will have, I guess, what they call quasi-species or variants, you know, close variants. So, yep. I mean, this is my guess, is when someone's infected by a given virus, so there's dozens or hundreds or thousands or even millions of variants, slight variants. Um, you know, if you can, I don't know if you can call these quasi-species, but do you think that they all coordinate to do a, to infect? Or, um, you know, there are instances where someone has created an isolate of, you know, of a virus with just one sequence and there's no, there's no variations and infected a, a mouse or a cell or a bacteria and, and seeing the difference between that and like a wild type that, that has a bunch of variants. Yeah, I mean, co-infection is entirely possible. You know, uh, in a lab, you know, you can, you can infect a cell with multiple different viruses. It's called super infection in the lab, but it's also been observed in patients and it's called co-infections. You can get co-infections all the time. And um, so, so you're talking about um, variants of one virus or uh, multiple different viruses at the same time? Well, no, I mean the same virus, you know, the, the XYZ virus. Mm. Um, you know, let's say it's a, I don't know, an RNA virus, so it has, you know, a lot of variants and it mutates a lot. So if I get infected by the XYZ virus, I'm probably not going to be infected by, you know, let's say it has, I don't know, 30,000 base pairs. All mm. 30,000 base pairs won't be the same in all the viruses of the XYZ virus that infect me, it'll probably have like tons of variants. You know, maybe one base pair is different or a thousand base pairs are different, whatever. But, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if you can call these quasi-species, but they're just closed variants of what we call the XYZ virus. I'm making this up. Yeah. So yeah, um, when, I, when I get infected, do you think that these variants coordinate and they have varying abilities to be able to infect me better than just one you know, very homogenous strain that's exactly the same. Yeah. Um, I, th there aren't as many variants as you would think. I mean, you know, so looking at the sequencing studies from, from SARS-CoV-2, right, in the current outbreak. So when you, you sequence the virus, and, and of course, with next-gen sequencing now, it's, it's, it's trivial to sequence the entire thing in a very short space of time. You know, you just stick it into the machine and it will just give you back a sequence. It's not like the old school Sanger sequencing, which took, you know, days or weeks to, to walk along the chromosome, you know, or the, the, the viral DNA, like it, it, it's, it's trivial now. So they've done this all across the board. And what you would typically expect to see in these viruses is about one base pair change um, per month, you know, so it's not that fast as you would think. And one of the reasons is, you know, because going back to the RNA virus making mistake, mistakes all the time when it copies its, 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 uh, its genome, not all those mistakes are tolerated. And, uh, you know, so you, you can experimentally demonstrate this in the lab. Like I, I worked um, next door to a lab that worked on an RNA virus called norovirus, which causes, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a seasonal sickness virus. It's a diarrhea virus. And so what they would do is they would make mutations in the viral genome, and then they would infect cells of the virus, and they'd, they'd recapture it later on and sequence it. And what they found was that the majority of the mutations they made were reverting to the original version of the sequence when they took it out. And the reason is, is because the mutations they were making were deleterious on what that virus was able to do inside the cells that were selected outside the gene pool. So the kinds of changes you see in viruses over time, uh, only some of them will be tolerated in the bigger picture of that viral um, population. So um, in terms of, 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 of co-infection, I mean, you can kind of see that really, though, with uh, viruses like influenza would be a better example, because influ influenza has 
a genome of eight segments. It's a segmented genome, so it's eight parts to it. And so what happens is, is you can have two different types of influenza infect the same cell. And the reason why influenza is so dangerous is because you get what's called antigenic shift, and they can swap gene segments between them. And so you can have two fairly benign variants of influenza virus, and you can have a reshuffling of those segments and suddenly come out with a virus that's extremely dangerous. And that's one of the reasons why it evolves. It can just have this big jump in pathogenicity um, because of this swapping of genes between, between two um, uh, serotypes of influenza within the same cell. So that does happen in that case. Um, so within, within the same infected person, you could have, what, recombination of two different types of influenza to make, a, make one that would be you know, far worse, far more pathogenic, let's say? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's, again, it's, it's a well-known phenomenon with influenza, again, called antigenic uh, shift. So I mean, there's two different types of, of evolution. Since virions are, are non-motile, then this happens inside a cell, but that, that seems to say that the, the one, one virus, one cell model is not accurate in this case. That means that multiple no. influenza virus or virions will infect the same cell. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, experimentally, so when you're working with viruses in the lab, um, you're, you're typically not infecting. It's what they call MOI or, or, or um, uh, multiplicity of infection. And so you're typically infecting with an MOI of 10 or 100, you know, viruses per cell. I mean, you see, you calculate it, you teeter the virus and you infect cells. One virus doesn't necessarily get a foothold. You need several viruses to be able to do it. So in a normal infection of the body, you're probably having multiple viruses per cell anyway. So if you have a situation like that with a mixed population of serotypes of virus, you're probably having that happening all the time, you know, depending on the percentage of those serotypes within the population. I mean, it, it, it's, it, with influenza, it's a much better characterized phenomenon than it is with, with something like SARS-CoV-2, because obviously SARS-CoV-2 is, is very new and early, and all those studies haven't really been done. Well, another, another possibility, though, is that, you know, once a, uh, a virus has entered a cell, as it's, you know, producing more virus and packaging up, you know, packaging it up in variants, that there's errors that occur, and then these errors uh, eventually produce a more virulent form, or you know the um, the different strands of RNA or DNA then recombine inside the cell from the same you know original father virus, and uh, and therefore you know are different. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, it's entirely possible. I mean, uh, it, it, taking sort of the, 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 the macrocosm of it, though, and, and just sequencing enough virus over a broad population demonstrates, though, with SARS-CoV-2, this isn't, uh, certainly, if it is happening commonly, which you would suspect it is with, with, RNA, with an RNA virus like SARS-CoV-2, I mean, it's a 30,000 base per um, uh, RNA genome. So the error rate for copying RNA is about one in a thousand base pairs every single time it's copied. So those mistakes are happening even every single time the genome is copied. But the issue would be is the overwhelming majority of those mistakes are deleterious on that virus's immediate survival after it starts producing a virion and leaving the cell. And that would be, I, I, would, I would guess, that's probably the, the reason why those mutations aren't maintained. Now, it just so happens to be that eventually you're going to have a mutation which gives it some sort of preferential advantage and makes it worse. I mean, that's entirely possible. Yeah. Hmm. So if, um, if multiple viruses can infect a cell, do you think there's any coordination in the fusing portion of it, you know, or the, the binding portion? Do you think that, uh, you know, if you imagine a cell and let's say two viruses uh, find receptors that are, I don't know, 50 nanometers away, let's say, and they both hmm. fuse and bind. And do you think that they could, for instance, maybe use the cell membrane or the cell internal machinery to coordinate action between them? You think that might be a possibility? Um, I think, uh, again, being quite selfish um, quasi-life that they are, um, if anything, uh, they're competing with each other to get inside the cell. I mean, it, there's only a certain number of, of, of cognate receptors in the surface of the cell. So I'm not aware of any uh, cooperativity in, in entry uh, that I'm familiar with. Um, but I would say, you know, the more virus, if you've got multiple strains of competing virus, every single one that binds to the cell and gets inside, it reduces the possibility of a secondary infection. Because again, remember when the virus binds the receptor, the receptor and the virus are taken inside because it's an end, so, so it's an endocytosis process. The whole receptor and the virus are taken inside at the same time. 
And so, for, well, not in all cases, but certainly in most, for receptor-mediated endocytosis, that's how it works. And so that's one less receptor for future virus to bind to. So I would say more so it's, it, it's actually reducing the chances of other viruses binding. And the other factor is, is that once one virus gets inside the cell, and it say triggers interferon or triggers in a danger state, that's making it even more difficult, not only for other viruses to get into that cell, but also mm. adjacent cells. So, so that's probably more the case, I would imagine. So do you think that viruses are, um, you know, if I imagine a virus is like a, a person sitting in a control room, you know, like, a, like in a nuclear reactor, he's got all these controls in front of him. Um, you know, when a virus enters a cell, it, it you know, obviously it co-ops cellular machinery to make more of itself. It, it modulates the immune response, et cetera. Do you think that, that viruses are capable of um, changing cells so that they'll send out specific extracellular vesicles that can send messages to other cells and, and change them? Uh, do you think that's possible? Um, the extracellular vesicle um, issues, I mean, it's a fairly new area, you know, and I mean, it's, 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 it's not something I've worked on myself. I'm, I'm not familiar with anything virus related in, the, in extracellular vesicles. And um, there's one thing uh, that sort of touches on the stuff that, that I've been doing. I mean, one of the secondary messengers that's triggered by viral infections, so I mentioned that CGAF protein that, bind, that is hex viral DNA, for example, that produces a secondary messenger called CGAMP. And CGAMP is, is, can basically travel between cells and extracellular vesicles. It can also package inside virus capsids. And so when the, vir the virus picks up this danger signal and carries it to other cells and pre-warns the cell that way as well, there's been, there's been recorded instances of that. Um, but in terms of the virus modulating the cell to send, to send messages to other cells, I'm not too familiar with that. I mean, you know, there's plenty of examples of vaccinia virus um, has you know a good example of vaccinia virus modulating the, the surrounding environment. It's basically stolen the ex extracellular parts of loads of these pro-inflammatory cytokine receptors. So it's stolen the outside parts of the TNF receptor, the IL-1 receptor, the interferon receptors. And what it does is it produces them inside the cell and makes it secrete them. And so the entire extracellular environment gets flooded with these soluble versions of the receptors that are needed to respond to the cytokines that the cell is trying to produce to get rid of the virus. So, so vaccine virus would be a great example of this sort of nefarious, you know, mastermind inside the cell modulating the extracellular environment for its benefit. Yeah, that's amazing. Huh. And how could, a, how could a, a naked piece of genetic material do all this? It's, it's incredible. Yeah. But it, it does it by having a very, very large genome and an awful lot of time to, to come up with these um, ingenious ways of getting around things. Well, some, some viruses, though, have a very small genome, right? Like, I guess Ebola and some of those are really, really, uh, there's not much yeah. going on, it looks like, you know. No, absolutely. So, I mean, there's, there's a huge difference between uh, DNA, DNA viruses like poxvirus. I mean, poxviral genomes are hundreds of thousands of base pairs in size. And I mean, they, they don't have to worry about space nearly as much as RNA viruses. They're only a couple of thousand base pairs long, you know. But what I will say is, uh, what, what's been invariably found is, even though there's only a handful of proteins produced by these RNA viral genomes, they pack in a huge amount of multifunctionality. So you often find that um, you'll find an inhibitor that targets, say, interferon signaling. And you'll find that it also targets about three other pathways. And, and how they do this is quite remarkable. It, 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 it's a kind of a wonder that they're able to pack so much functionality into a single protein by again, refining it and refining it over time to add all these extra functions so that you only have to pack it into a small bit of genetic information within the, the very, very, very small RNA genome. Hmm. Um, if, um, if I get infected with a virus and I label myself number one, you know, like uh, let's say I'm the first person infected and then I give it to you and you're number two and you give it to your cousin, he's number three. And, you know, by the time we get to like number 20, it's passage through like 20 people. What do you expect the virus to look like? How will it have changed? Will it be more commensal, more virulent? Uh, will there not be much difference? You know, what would you expect to see in terms of the, you know, the outcome of the person that gets it and, and the virus itself? Um, I suspect it doesn't change. Uh, it depends on the pressure, you know, because it's got to be a selection pressure uh, to a great extent. So there's got to be a, some sort of selective pressure to maintain the mutations that happen in, 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 say, a small RNA virus. And again, going back to that, 
sequencing, population sequencing of, of, of this virus over and, and how many people is infected now, you know, it's probably in the order of hundreds of millions, if not billions, probably is, is going to be the final number when it's all said and done. But um, the fact that it hasn't changed substantially in so many people indicates that there's no selective pressure for those mutations that are probably regularly happening to be maintained. Um, now, that being said, you know, viruses uh, can change given enough selective pressure. Viruses are the most deadly when they've just jumped from other species, by the way. And so you look at this virus, I mean, it's just come from bats, probably bats more than likely. And um, they're at their most dangerous because they're very, very poor at switching off the systems in, in, in humans, you know, and that's one of the reasons why it causes such a profound inflammation because it's not able to get around it. Now, you would expect over time that it will evolve gradually to be less dangerous, which is what like, I mean, most viruses are after is essentially just producing as much virus as possible, flying under the radar and not making the host sick because sick hosts can't move around and they can't transmit the virus. Um, mm. And dead hosts can't transmit, transmit any virus. So it's not the agenda of any virus to kill a host. It, it, it usually is the case that it's a virus that's just recently jumped a species barrier and now finds itself in an environment that it can't control and orchestrate. Um, so you would expect over time it will change for sure. But what's more likely going to change is that um, you know, when, you, when, when most people develop immunity to it, by, either by directly getting it by vaccination, that um, any subsequent versions of it probably won't be dangerous anyway because it'll be cross-protected by having antibodies. It's one of the reasons, you know, I mean, most uh, common colds in, in winter are coronaviruses, you know, and not that dissimilar from this one, uh, but they're different enough to the extent they just don't kill you because they have adapted to humans to the extent they don't cause a serious disease. And they probably jumped from a species, another species just like um, SARS-CoV-2 has, but over time they've become less dangerous as well. I mean, so, so it's, it's a process of adaptation that uh, all viruses are sort of evolving towards uh, in order to maximize um, um, replication and maximize spread. Hmm. Well, very good. Well, Gareth, um, you, you know, it's great talking to you. You have tons of knowledge. Um, definitely want to have you back to talk about your research. And then um, what's the best way for now for people to find out more about your research and your work? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a website on the, uh, the Trinity College Dublin uh, page. I mean, I, I, I very um, uh, infrequently use social media, to be honest, a bit of a Twitter um, page, but I very infrequently update news about SARS-CoV-2, but I wouldn't be a, probably a great person to follow as a result, but um, yeah. Okay. Well, no problem. Well, Gareth, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Very welcome. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.